Hi, it's Jen. NPR is conducting its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. So please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. We really appreciate your help supporting NPR podcasts. Thanks. Good evening. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. In 1972, a break-in at the Watergate Hotel precipitated the greatest political scandal of its time. Now, five decades later, Congress is poised for hearings on another major event, the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The House Select Committee investigating January 6th will hear testimony from many people over the next few weeks, including a Capitol Police officer and a documentarian who was embedded with the far-right group The Proud Boys the day of the attack. And many of you said you'll be watching or listening. I'm planning to listen to every second of them, and they're very important to me. What I would like to see from the January 6th hearings is accountability. My fingers are crossed and my heart is full of hope that Somebody will be found guilty. I would like to see the people responsible for what occurred held accountable. And if that means it goes all the way up to the person who was our president, then that clearly is what that means. I would like to hear democracy defined consistently. People hear that they're going to take away our democracy. But I don't believe a lot of us understand what democracy is. After the break, we'll discuss what past hearings can tell us about the road ahead for the January 6th committee. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Struggling with work or any of life's roles can lead to a lack of motivation and detachment. Prioritize your mental health by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us now is journalist and historian Garrett Graff. He's the author of Watergate, A New History. Garrett, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for chatting again today. So you've identified three special hearings that give us some insight into the road ahead for the January 6th committee. That's Watergate, 9-11, and then there's the Mueller investigation. And I want to focus on Watergate first. Talk about the circumstances leading up to the, forna- the formation of the Senate Watergate Committee. So one of the things, you know, this this month, as you mentioned in the introduction, marks the 50th anniversary of that burglary on June 17th, 1972. But it really took about a year before the scandal around that event gained momentum such that it began to captivate the country. Um, And one of the things that's sort of easy to forget now is that there were many periods between June 1972 and the original burglary and March of 1973 
when Sam Irvin's uh, Senate Select Watergate Committee began to come together, that the cover-up almost succeeded, um, and Nixon uh, almost got away with uh, the dirty tricks in the midst of that 72 campaign. But what we began to see uh, through those nine months was hints of a broader cover-up and broader illegalities, and that the Senate began to investigate more thoroughly in the spring of 1973, and in a way similar to the January 6th committee, spent about six months uh, working behind the scenes to try to piece together the story be- before they began their public hearings. Um, and they thought very carefully about how to structure those hearings and how to tell the complex story that Watergate really was. How does the Senate Watergate Committee compare to the J6 Committee in terms of its makeup? Similar, um, you know, they were both uh, bipartisan committees. Um, You know, I think one of the major differences, of course, is the Republican participation, Um, you know, as has been sort of well followed over the last year. Uh, the Republican participation in this committee has been very controversial, um, with Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger um, being the Republican representatives, people uh, who have been very forthright in their condemnation of the events of January 6th uh, and having paid a very significant political price for doing so. Um, in, in 1973, as the Irvin Committee began, um, the Republican participants in that uh, hearing, um, including Connecticut's Lowell Weicker um, and then uh, Howard Baker, uh, two Republican senators, uh, came with a much more open mind um, and, and were much more in the, the political center of the Republican Party um, in, in terms of their respect and stature at the time. Well, here's former White House counsel John Dean testifying in front of Congress during the Watergate hearings in 1973. What I had hoped to do in this conversation was to have the president tell me we had to end the matter now. Accordingly, I gave considerable thought to how I would present this situation to the president and try to make as dramatic a presentation as I could to tell him how serious I thought the situation was that the cover-up continue. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency, and if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. I also told him that it was important that this cancer be removed immediately because it was growing more deadly every day. Now, the Watergate Committee held 51 hearings over the course of six months. In contrast, the special committee investigating the January 6th attack has planned six hearings for the month of June. Why are the scopes of these hearings so different? So I, I, I'm actually concerned that the January 6th committee is, is biting off more than it can trying to cram all of this into six hearings. Um, it wasn't just the uh, depth of the Watergate hearings, um, but the way that they were covered and the way that they were structured that made them so successful. Um, o- over the course of about 11 weeks in that summer of 1973, the Watergate Committee held 237 hours 
of uh, public testimony. That testimony was aired on all three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, and then re-aired every night in prime time by PBS. Um, and, and it captivated the nation, the, the country that had initially been concerned that these live Senate hearings were interrupting their afternoon soap operas quickly became enamored with the Nixonian soap opera that was unfolding that summer. And that over the course of the summer, the average American household actually watched about 30 hours of that Senate testimony, those Senate hearings, um, just sort of an unimaginable level of civic engagement around those hearings. Uh, that summer, and really began to ch change and shape the public perception of the corruption and criminality inside the Nixon White House. The, the January 6th committee, by the way, you know, for by contrast, you know, is trying to cram a very complex story into a much shorter time span. And I think that they are viewing that as uh, a challenge of the nation's more limited media attention span. And Garrett, just briefly, in, in, in a sentence or two, what was the Watergate Committee's overall goal? They wanted to trace the full conspiracy start to finish of the Nixon White House. And did they accomplish that? Uh, they they did, but they also generated the enthusiasm for the special prosecutor in the Justice Department to move ahead, and ultimately the Rodino Impeachment Committee to move ahead the following year. Garrett, as we mentioned, Fox News has announced it won't air continuous live coverage of any of the hearings. What does it say to you about the media landscape, the political landscape surrounding January 6th? It's important to remember that Fox News was a big proponent, continues actually to be a big proponent on shows like Tucker Carlson's show of the big lie around Donald Trump and the 2020 election. I mean, I think that there is a uh, strong argument to be made that Fox News uh, culturally is effectively an unindicted co-conspirator in the January 6th insurrection. So I, I'm not at all surprised that they are uh, trying to hide the realities of that event from their audience. Um, it, it's entirely consistent with their uh, sort of view of the world and their uh, very fixed uh, political rhetoric and, and mindset that they try to inculcate into their viewers day in and day out. And so when you contrast that with Watergate, the Watergate hearings and the fact that so many Americans were engaged in those hearings, watching, listening, what do you think that means for the country now that one of the top five broadcasters is not carrying these, isn't carrying these hearings and, and has continued to repeat this lie that the presidency was stolen? So, it, you know, if you go back the, the five decades to Watergate, obviously the, me, the media landscape was much simpler. I mean, this was still an era of morning and afternoon newspapers, and then the three TV networks plus PBS were effectively the totality of the TV landscape. Um, today, uh, you know, even leaving aside Fox, the media landscape is just much more fractured. You have cable channels um, galore. Uh, streaming channels, uh, and that, you know, it would be much easier to avoid watching the January 6th hearings 
tonight uh, and, and in the weeks ahead than it was to escape watching the Watergate hearings in the summer of 1973. You know, if you turned on the TV during the day in the summer of 1973, your only choices were the Watergate hearings. Um, and that's a major change. The more, I think, challenging change is going to be the way that Fox News is going to be able, uh, along with the broader conservative right-wing media ecosystem, to offer counter-programming, uh, to offer sort of rebuttals, and to offer attacks on the people who are participating in the January 6th hearings. That, the, uh, I think you are going to see a very concerted effort from Republicans on the Hill to leading conservative pundits over the next couple of weeks to, to muddy the waters around the evidence that the January 6th committee is offering and to try to make this seem like a more, uh, you know, good people on both sides, bad people on both sides story than it will actually turn out to be. I want to briefly turn to 9-11. In the wake of the attacks, Congress established the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States. What did that commission set out to do and what did it find? The the 9-11 commission, I think, is also an important analog to understanding the work and the posture of the January 6th committee. Because the, the 9-11 commission had a very specific set of responsibilities to identify how the U.S. government failed and missed warning signs in the lead up to 9-11 and on 9-11 itself, and then to propose reforms that uh, that could help protect the country going forward. Um, and, and this, I, I think, is, again, one of the things that's important to look back also at the Watergate memory, which is the, the post-Watergate moment launched this almost Cambrian explosion of democracy reforms to address the abuses of power and illegal acts by the Nixon administration. And that in the case of 9-11, in the case of Watergate, we saw the government and we saw Congress react to these problems with reform efforts. Um, you know, new authorities, new protections, um, new agencies, uh, and that one of the big questions that's going to come out of the work of the January 6th commission, uh, committee over the next couple of weeks is where do we go from here? You know, is this going to be solely an effort at assigning responsibility for the January 6th insurrection? Or is this going to be a moment where Congress can act to protect American democracy against these abuses going forward. And you, you've seen reporting already in the last couple of weeks that there is a big split within the committee about just how wide and broad the committee's uh, desire for reforms will be coming out of this work. Well, and just remind us, what was public support like for that 9-11 investigation and its hearings? It, it, it was very high. I mean, there there was, um, you know, the 9-11 Commission, I think, stands as one of the most significant government investigative efforts that we have ever seen. Um, and it's 
report, uh, when it was finally issued, uh, you know, was a blockbuster bestseller, um, and, and in many ways still stands as one of the two or three best narratives of how our government and our country failed to anticipate the 9-11 attacks and then what actually happened on 9-11 itself. It was a massive effort, huge staff, millions of dollars uh, of of, uh, work and research and and interviews and hearings went into it. Uh, And then then again, the government actually acted. um, And and a large percentage of the reforms that the 9-11 Commission proposed uh, actually came to fruition. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Fox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Let's get back to our conversation about the January 6th hearings. I want to bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us now is Elizabeth Newman. She was the former Assistant Secretary of Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention at the Department of Homeland Security under former President Trump. Now she's the Chief Strategy Officer at Moonshot. That's a tech startup that aims to counter violent extremism. Elizabeth, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Jen. Now, you left your role at DHS in April of 2020. At the time, you said the counterterrorism community had failed to address the threats of domestic extremism and that the Trump administration had paved the way for more violence. Where are we now, more than two years and an insurrection later? The moment on January 6th, while it was uh, shocking to Americans, was not shocking to those of us watching the environment in which social in which in which uh, extremism was building um, I, I, it is easier now to look back over the past six years starting with Trump's election to realize that he was systematically radicalizing people whether he realized it or not um, and initially that form of extremism t- took uh, hostile actions that were kind of small, things that weren't on our national radar screen. So you saw increases in hate crimes, increases in intimidation and bullying. And under the way that um, counterterrorism officials look at extremism, that that is a form of extremism. Anytime you're using hostile action to uh, counter an outgroup, that is a form of extremism. So bullying is a hostile action. Now, usually at a national level, what we worry about are those mass attacks, the terrorism side of things. And, And you started to see in 2020 the possibility of something bigger culminating. We saw it in Kenosha. Uh, we saw a lot of uh, protest, counter-protest violence. And we also started to see militia groups like the Proud Boys um, get much more vocal about calling for war, calling for violence. And so when January 6th culminated, while um, there, we now know there were people sounding the alarm, it just wasn't heeded uh, by those in charge in the federal government to properly protect the Capitol, um, it was quite a shock, I think, to the American public. Now we're in this place where hopefully the American public is aware that we we have a problem with extremism in this country. We have a problem of individuals who think that in order to preserve their way of life, they need to commit hostile actions against 
the outgroup. They've demonized uh, other people, they've dehumanized them, and they think, therefore, that violence is appropriate. I, some polls that came out on the anniversary of January 6th indicated that somewhere around a third of, of the American public believe that violence might be necessary to achieve their political aims. Um, that That's problematic. It's, it's so large. Well, that- I, I, I want to mention that only 35 out of more than 200 House Republicans voted in favor of establishing the January 6th commission last year. As we mentioned, in February, the Republican National Committee voted to censure Republican representatives Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Adam Kinzinger of Illinois for their work on the panel. As someone who is concerned about the rise of extremism and and who's previously identified as a lifelong Republican, how are you reflecting on the GOP's resistance to this investigation? I find it extremely frustrating as an extremism expert. We, we need Republicans to be responsible here. And I, I will give some of them the benefit of the doubt. I think they're just playing political games and they don't realize that they're playing with fire. But it, would, it really would matter if you could have the Republican Party, the bulk of the Republican Party, not, you know, they're always going to be outliers. But if you could have the bulk of the Republican Party say um, that hey, we really need to get to the bottom of this and make sure that extremist groups that have, we've already had some indicted, that they can never play a part in trying to stop the peaceful transition of power in the future. That would matter. And and the base of the party would start to pay attention that something really dangerous happened 18 months ago. We can't let it happen again. I want to go to this tweet we got from Alex, who says, January 6th was a terrible day for our democracy. However, these hearings seem like a little more than a distraction for Democrats in the face of current crises Americans care more about, like inflation and high gas prices. And Elizabeth, I'm really curious to hear from you, especially as someone who's concerned about extremism, how you respond to to that idea that Americans are concerned about other things? Well, I I very much uh, personally uh, also share the concerns about inflation and uh, gas prices. That's a very real felt uh, pain point right now for all of us. Um, That said, your government should be able to walk and chew gum. Uh, We spend trillions of dollars funding federal agencies, funding the Congress, funding um, national security, as well as domestic uh, policy. And there are different people, different organizations and institutions responsible for those different parts of the system. So I, I, I think we can both address January 6th and um, the factors that led to it and the, the remnants of uh, that we're still dealing with. And, and hopefully out of this comes uh, actual um, recommendations of how to start to address some of the systemic issues related to uh, everything from the Electoral Count Act to um, there were clearly security failures, uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security, the Capitol Police, and uh, the FBI failed. We need to understand where the breakdown was and fix that. So there are very practical things that need to be addressed that maybe um, the average American doesn't care, but it still needs to be done because if it's not fixed, then it will become your hot burner issue as an American citizen um, in a catastrophic way. So um, I, I would 
this is not to suggest that the American public shouldn't pay attention. I, I would hope that everybody pays attention to what's going on uh, uh, tonight. And um, at least if maybe you don't follow all the hearings, uh, read about it to understand how close we came to potentially losing our democracy. Um, but but yes, uh, from a political standpoint, I can completely appreciate that Democrats, other you know parts of um, the Democratic Party may need to also be consistently addressing these other very real concerns of the American public. But we should be able to do both. We got this email from Jay who says multiple Republicans are ignoring subpoenas to testify in front of the January 6th committee. What happens to the House's power to investigate if there are no consequences for breaking the law? Garrett, your thoughts? So this is one of the big challenges that both the Watergate committee faced and then, uh, of course, the January 6th committee faces, which is... Congress has a different mandate and a different responsibility than the Justice Department. And that these hearings, um, both in the case of Watergate and in the case of January 6th, are unfolding alongside uh, parallel but related criminal investigations by the Justice Department. Um, you know, Merrick Garland uh, and the Justice Department have been uh, very quiet about the status of their own January 6th investigation. Um, in terms of uh, the case that they are looking into or building against White House aides. Um, we know that there have been hundreds of federal indictments uh, against the insurrectionists themselves, um, and we've seen some remarkable sets of uh, charges of seditious conspiracy against the uh, the Proud Boys and, and other um, white nationalist uh, groups that participated in the, uh, the, the battle at the Capitol on January 6th. Um, but I do think that one of the challenges uh, that we are going to face as a country over the next couple of months is what does Merrick Garland and the Justice Department end up doing for the highest-ranking officials in the Trump administration, um, up to and including the president himself? Um, and are these hearings going to show shocking information that the Justice Department decides for its own reasons to not act upon? Um, and we've already seen, for instance, the Justice Department decline to bring some contempt of Congress uh, indictments that have been referred from Congress to the Justice Department. Um, they've acted in a couple of cases, including um, an indictment uh, of Trump aide Peter Navarro relatively recently. But uh, we are a long way from understanding how the Justice Department is viewing the criminal culpability of the highest levels of the Trump administration in this. We got this tweet from Carol who says, I desperately want to know the truth about the involvement of government officials in the insurrection and attempted coup. I want accountability. And Garrett, this is something we've heard from many listeners who, who want to see accountability from these hearings. What do you think it will take for the House Select Committee to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department? Well, they're ultimately not, I think, going to uh, desire to make their own criminal referrals out of uh, actions that they see um, or actions that they talk about. That's not really the role that they are building towards. Um, that uh, I, I think we will see 
um, in their final report, which uh, there's reporting that they hope to issue this fall, uh, that they will try to tell that story. They will try to come as close as they can to pointing to criminal acts that they have identified. Um, and we have certainly seen them in some of their uh, court hearings over uh, tr trying to force the uh, enforcement of their subpoenas that they uh, believe that there is criminal activity uh, as part of their investigation that they have identified. Um, but ultimately, they, it is not the role of Congress to bring criminal referrals for broader actions that they identify. Um, and I think that we are going to see them likely stop short of doing that um, and instead try to introduce the evidence uh, into the public record that perhaps the Justice Department can then pick up on its own investigation if it didn't have it already. We got this email from Dale who says, I am eagerly awaiting the January 6th hearings. I am 71 years old and remember the Watergate hearings. What horrifies me now is that Republicans can be presented with clear evidence that these violent illegal things happened and then act like it doesn't matter. We all saw it and we need laws that we previously never thought we needed. Elizabeth uh, Garrett mentioned the, ju the Justice Department uh, charged the head of the far-right extremist group, the Proud Boys, with seditious conspiracy along with four other leaders. They also charged the leaders of the far-right extremist group, the Oath Keepers, with seditious conspiracy. Briefly tell us more about these charges and what they mean. So seditious conspiracy, one, is not a charge that's brought very often. So when it when it when the first one dropped um, for the, the Oath Keepers um, earlier this year, um, I, it was the first time in the investigation that I kind of felt like, okay, fi finally we're getting somewhere. Um, to see the Proud Boys also get looped in is not surprising, um, but the, sometimes the wheels of justice turn slowly. So um, uh, clearly they're they're working their way through um, a number of groups and people and inv individuals, but we still don't know some of the key things. So conspiracy, with whom were they conspiring besides just themselves? Like it's very clear in the indictment that uh, Enrique Tario, the leader of the Proud Boys, and Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, were conspiring together. Um, but there are some very outstanding questions whether uh, Roger Stone is going to be looped in here and whether the White House is going to get looped in. I don't know if we're going to hear about that um, through the committee hearings. That that could be interesting. They may be able to lay out some some dots that haven't been previously publicly connected. But as Garrett mentioned, I'm, I'm assuming that the Department of Justice is also working to figure out who funded them, who was giving them the orders about where to go, when to go, um, and, and how much of uh, how much coordination was there with um, the, the campaign or to uh, the, the work that was happening at the White House. But the other thing that I found really interesting in reading the indictments is there was this phrase over and over again, persons known and unknown to the grand jury. The implication being there are other people that are in the process of likely being indicted. So I, I think we know just a little bit of the story. There is more to come here. And it, it's painting a kind of a scary picture. We had violent extremist groups coordinating potentially with people in the White House, if not close to the White House, to try to disrupt uh, the peaceful transfer of power. If, if I were to tell you that ISIS was coordinating with uh, the president's people to disrupt uh, some aspect of the, the functioning of our government, wouldn't we all panic? But that's, in fact, what they've done. It's just that 
instead of people from another country doing it, it, it was American citizens that were participating in a violent extremist group. That's Elizabeth Newman. She's the former Assistant Secretary of Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention at the Department of Homeland Security under former President Trump. Now she's the Chief Strategy Officer at Moonshot. That's a tech startup that aims to counter violent extremism. Also with us today, journalist and historian Garrett Graff. He's the author of Watergate, A New History. Garrett, Elizabeth, thanks for your time. Today's producer was Catherine Fink. NPR is conducting its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. You can help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. We really appreciate your help. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.